Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia, and dedicated to the proposition, first articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II, that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman. I'm a counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, as well as a Bulwark contributor and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. I'm joined by my partner in this strategic enterprise, Elliot Cohen, the Robert Osgood Professor at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, and the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Welcome, Elliot. We have plenty to talk about today. We certainly do. We certainly do. Elliot, you have just written a terrific piece in The Atlantic about why Americans can't seem to accept the fact that Ukraine is winning. It comes a week or so after our former SICE colleague, Frank Fukuyama, published a piece in American Purpose uh, saying that we have to get ready for Russia's defeat. I mean, in some sense, they're flip sides of the same, same coin. Walk us through the argument um, in your Atlantic piece, if you, if you would. I think it'd be useful for our listeners to hear you go through it. Sure. Well, there, there are really two different pieces to this. What's, first, what's going on on the ground in Ukraine? And secondly, you know, what, what are the cognitive uh, filters and barriers that we have to, to accepting what the, what the facts have to tell us? And I, I guess I want to preface my remarks by saying that un- unquestionably, the people of Ukraine are suffering, suffering terribly in this war. Ukrainian cities are being battered. Russian forces are committing war crimes for which there should be justice administered down the road. But just to the reason why I think the Ukrainians are doing a lot better than uh, they've been given credit for is, you know, just empirically. So the Russian armies have really not been able to move except a bit in the south where all of the conditions favor them, proximity to their bases and so forth. Uh, What we know is that there are large elements of the Russian plan that failed. They've not been able to suppress Ukrainian air defenses. They've not been able to suppress the Ukrainian Air Force. Even the lower estimates of uh, Russian losses are quite staggering. There was that story, which I'm sure you saw, where which looks to me like a, a slip that was made in Russia, releasing that, yeah, there are probably something like about 10,000 Russian soldiers who've been killed in action. Uh, even the American estimates, which are low, are seven to 8,000, which is a very high number. If you, certainly if you look at accounts of tactical engagements, uh, there haven't been that many uh, accounts, but those that there have been, you really see the Russians at a disadvantage. There was a very good piece in the Wall Street Journal by Yaroslav uh, Trofimov uh, about a battle at Vosnesensk. Yeah, terrific which, piece. You know, indicates just the, the degree of success the Ukrainians have uh, been having. In fact, we know the Ukrainians have conducted counterattacks and been able to retake some ground. And you're really beginning to see signs of Russian morale cracking, including uh, not only desertions, but abandonment of equipment. I mean, it's quite staggering. If you look at the the Ukrainians have actually captured more equipment than they've lost. And if you look at the Russian equipment, what's quite stunning to me is that you have as many pieces of equipment that have been abandoned as have been destroyed or disabled. So that and a number of other indicators suggest to me that the Ukrainians are doing very well. And it's not implausible because first, they are much better motivated. 
they're better trained. They seem in certain respects to be better equipped. Uh, and they do have behind them the uh, serious resources from the United States, other Western countries, Turkey, and so forth. And and I think this is something, obviously, there's a limit to what one can say about it. Uh, they have behind them the resources of Western intelligence. Uh, you know, that I think is why their air defense system has been able to survive. Now, none of that's to say that a Ukrainian victory is foreordained. I don't, I don't believe that. And things, it's a war. Things can change. We don't have perfect visibility. But it is to say that on the whole, the Ukrainians have been quite successful. And we'll talk a little bit later on about what that means. Uh, but it does seem to me that the tide of battle has in a number of ways flowed in their direction. There's some exceptions, which we'll also discuss. As for why we have trouble accepting it, I think there are a number of reasons. The meta-narrative about our side, meaning the West, uh, if you think about Afghanistan, you think about Iraq, is one of failure or inadequacy or inability to achieve very much. And I think that has really tainted uh, some of the coverage. There has been an understandable tendency, I think, to focus on the horrors of war, and they are, it is horrific, of course. But that detracts from actually figuring out how the war on the ground is actually going. You know, if during World War II you had just focused on the devastation of London and Coventry and so on, uh, you wouldn't be getting a correct picture of where the war actually was. Furthermore, I think a lot of uh, our perception has been shaped by expert analysis of the Russians, uh, and a certain degree of ignorance of the Ukrainians. So for one thing, there aren't that many specialists on the Ukrainian military, and I think we underestimated the impact of eight years of training and preparation since 2014. On the other side, and I think there are long-term lessons here, it seems to me a lot of the Russian military analysts were mesmerized by Russian technology, some of which is pretty good, Russian numbers, and Russian doctrine. And there's just been way, way less attention paid to all the things that we, we know make a difference in war, small unit leadership, for example. And the Russians really don't have non-commissioned officers the way we understand them. And it shows. It shows in their completely terrible maintenance. It shows in their terrible small unit leadership or reactions to ambush. But by the way, I mean, even if you're an amateur, if you if you watch pictures of some of these engagements, you have to be struck by how just how tactically incompetent uh, the Russians are in force-on-force -force fights. Now, again, I just want to stipulate, I, mean, I think the Ukrainians are succeeding. That doesn't mean their success is inevitable. An enormous amount hinges actually on us and what we're willing to do. It hinges to some extent on what the Russians are willing to do. It's a very dangerous situation. But I'll, I'll just say one last thing. You know, as you know, Eric, uh, I've spent three de decades teaching at SICE. And the one book that I am glad that I forced all my students to read is Carl von Clausewitz on war. And one of the things that Clausewitz has to teach us is that war is this contest of wills. That Now, that doesn't mean that it's not something which, you know, the, the use of intelligence and the, the common sense is... Uh, is unimportant. Far from it. He says, the maximum use of force is by no means incompatible with the simultaneous use of the intellect. But I think we've lost that dimension of it. So it's not the case, as we think about the Russian military, for example, going forward, that it is this giant clanking machine 
which is impervious to emotional and psychological wear and tear. Very far from it. This is a test of will on both sides. Uh, in some ways, it's a test of which side will crack first. And at the moment, if you look at Russian forces, and the Russians have deployed, by some accounts, about 75% of their available combat forces, ground forces at least, Russian will looks to me to be more fragile than Ukrainian will. So I don't know. How do you react to all that? Yeah, at least on the battlefield, uh, you know, whether in capitals, that's a whole another question. Look, I agree completely. I've been on any number of Zoom calls with a lot of Russian military analysts, you know, some of them quite good, although I would say some of them maybe don't have the greatest political judgment. But the one thing that struck me both before and after the uh, 24th of February was the degree to which the focus on the bean count, the focus on the number of battalion tactical groups being arrayed around Ukraine. The, the number of tanks, the number of artillery pieces and armored personnel carriers, et cetera, really blinded people to what the late Sir Michael Howard called the social dimension of warfare, the sort of human characteristics that you're talking about, small unit cohesion and leadership, et cetera. Let me just ask a question and then offer one cautionary note, which is because I'm largely in agreement with what you've said. Could you talk a little bit about the loss of general officers? It's really quite striking. You mentioned the high casualties, and of course, the numbers that have appeared briefly online in Komsomolskaya Pravda, you know, which is a kind of house organ of Putin, and then disappeared of you know upwards of nine thousand killed. I've seen even higher estimates, but just to put it in perspective, I mean, the Russians, you know, had fourteen thousand KIA's in ten years of combat in Afghanistan which brought the Soviet Union down in large part. It wasn't the only reason, but was a big part of the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union. So these losses are astronomical uh, by any measure, but also the number of general officers. I think we had one, maybe two general officers killed in 20 years of combat in Afghanistan. And they're now looking at something like six, at least, if not more. So I'd love you to maybe talk a little bit about what that says about how this fight has gone on, Elliot. And then I guess the cautionary note I would want to introduce is this. To my surprise, I think to a lot of people's surprise, the Ukrainians have been dominant on the information space of this war. Um, and after all the Russian political interference in our election in 2016 and all the talk about you know Russian hybrid war and active measures and reflexive control and all of that stuff, Russians only seem to be trying to get into the game now. It, it really seems like for the first three weeks of this war, they've been hors de combat on the information front. And so I worry a little bit. We know a lot about the Russian losses. We actually don't have that good a picture for some of the reasons you mentioned, lack of expertise on the Ukrainian side, about how how much the Ukrainians have lost. And I mean militarily. We can see what's going on in Kharkiv and Mariupol and, and, and Kiev. But I worry a little bit that we're getting a bit of a one-sided picture. And I also worry that, at least in my case, I'm not going to speak for you. You know, the wish being father to the thought, you know, inclines me to really want to see the Russian military disintegrate, which I think it's close to doing. Yeah. So, I look, I mean, that's the thing I'm most concerned about uh, for my own analysis. I, I know which side I want to have win, and it's easy to indulge in wishful thinking. So that is a useful note. You know, on the, uh, I agree with you on the information front, although I would say that, you know, without intending to, we do a lot of that job for them. 
by talking up, you know, fearsome Russian equipment, talking up Russian numbers, scary Chechens, scary. You know, I mean, how much how much footage of scary Chechens are there? Uh, you know, taking at face value the idea that you're going to have fourteen thousand hardened killers from uh, Syria show up when you know, you'll have a bunch of guys who are probably going to be looking to become refugees if they possibly can. So I I take that point. I and mean, what we don't know is, and the thing that's hardest to, to track is, you know, what sort of emotional exhaustion the Ukrainians are are feeling. I mean, they've unquestionably taken losses. Um, and, you know, you do see slow attrition of their air force. I mean, that's, I think, one thing you can we can reasonably count. And uh, some of the open source intelligence organizations uh, like Oryx, I think, you know, do a pretty good job of tallying, uh, tallying equipment. It looks like there's at least five or probably, most probably six Russian general officers who've been killed, uh, which is, as you say, a staggering number. And these are pretty senior people like the deputy commanders of the combined arms armies, uh, which are sort of like American Army Corps, a bit smaller even. Uh, but those are uh, those are serious, and actually, there's a. No, I haven't seen an analysis of the numbers, but there's actually been a lot of colonels get killed too, uh, including in elite units like uh, the Special Operations Forces, Spetsnaz, Spetsnaz, yeah, and and in the uh, paratroops. So, what does it explain? And I, I think, I suppose, one construction could be: well, this is uh, dashing leadership from the front. If so, it's been very ineffective because they haven't been able to move very far. And again, I, I you know, we just have to remind ourselves. All of us, myself included, expected the Russians to take Ukraine in a week or two. And it's just clear that's not going to happen. But the most likely thing is, you know, what happens is they've got these vast forces they've deployed. They're getting stuck in all kinds of places. Um, and so the general, because, you, and they can't trust the initiative of the officers on the spot. So the senior guys have to show up. And so they're, you know, they come into to contact. The other thing, though, that I think is pretty clear is their communications are terrible. And so we've now, we know that at least there's one case where they're using a, an open cell phone, you know, which can be tracked. And, you know, they ended up getting hit by an artillery strike. I think it, it again speaks to Russian lack of competence at some very basic things. But by the way, one other thing we haven't really talked about is Russian resupply. So they've begun doing some resupply, most of it, again, committing more crimes by doing it in civilian vehicles. But, you know, it's clear their troops are suffering from food shortages. And, and not just at the operational level, the fact that that is on one of their shopping lists with the Chinese, meals ready to eat. You know, they, they can't even feed their troops. I mean, it just, it tells you that there's a systemic problem here. Um, now, maybe they can still hold it together no matter what, but I, I just somehow feel that we're we're not paying, we're not giving, assigning enough. We know these things, but I'm not sure we assign enough weight to them. Yeah, no, I mean, some of the video you see of you know Russian troops looting gas stations or. Uh, going through farms, looting chickens. It really remind you of reading stories of the Red Army's advance towards Berlin, the tail end of the Second World War. It's really amazing. On, on the coordination front, too, it's been reported in the press that U.S. intelligence has had a hard time figuring out you know, who the overall commander of this uh, affair is. And several people who follow this, some of the open source intelligence types of, like Rob Lee, for instance, 
uh, have been pointing out that it looks like different Russian elements here, the different axes of advance are fighting in different ways, that there's not some kind of coordinated plan. I mean, today I saw that, you know, they've started shelling Mariupol now, not just from land, but from the Sea of Azov. They've got a couple of ships, so they're getting some naval uh, shelling. In other places, you're seeing different kinds of approaches to all this, and, and everywhere you're seeing massive use of firepower, undisciplined, unrestrained firepower. Just to make a, make a couple of observations about just things that seem to be going on today. I mean, you pointed out Ukrainians are taking back some territory, uh, which is you know an indication, obviously, that this is not going well for the Russians. Now, how much they can take back and hold, I think, is going to be you know a major question. Everywhere the Russians have run into much fiercer resistance than they anticipated. In you know Mikolaev, for instance. Just before we came on the air, I've seen some indications that Russian troops northwest of Kiev, near uh, Bucha and Irpin, have been surrounded and cut off from their sources of supply by the Ukrainians, which, if true, I think suggests that they're going to have a whole whole lot more POWs. They already have a lot of POWs, already running into problems housing all the POWs that they have. And that, and as you know, that can become actually a problem in, in war. It can get in the way of your operations. I guess two questions I have for you that I'd like to talk about. One is, we don't talk enough, I don't think, about the Southern Front and the you know March on Mikolaev and the attempt to actually take Odessa, because that clearly is crucial. The Russians would like to take, and I don't just say that because you know, my family partly is from Odessa. It's not, I'm not a homer rooting for the home team here, but if Ukraine lost Odessa, its main port on the Black Sea, it would, you know, cut off their sea access, which would be a major, major blow. There's been all this activity in the Northern Black Sea. Today, the U.S. officials said there are 21 ships, 12 surface combatants, nine tank carriers kind of operating off of, of Odessa. To me, the idea that they're going to try and do an amphibious landing against a heavily defended port, given the degree of difficulty of executing that and the difficulty they've had just doing air-land combined operations, just strikes me as implausible. And it seems to me that a lot, I mean, we keep waiting for this assault on Odessa. I'm wondering whether this is just a lot of movement to keep Ukrainian forces pinned down in the south so they can't go up and join the fight. Uh, outside of Kiev and uh, Mariupol and and Kharkiv. So that's question one for you. Question two is this issue. The president, our president, President Biden, appears to have confirmed that the Russians used a hypersonic uh, missile, hypersonic cruise missile, the Kinzhal, at least once, maybe twice uh, in the last couple of days. I yield to you on this subject, but I don't quite see why the Russians would be doing that other than for, you know, demonstrative effect. It doesn't really serve any uh, military purpose. I mean, there's a lot of hype about hypersonics, you know, ballistic missiles fly at hypersonic speeds. So there's, you know, a lot of hype about this. But why would the Russians do this? So, um, well, let me address those, and then I want to ask you some questions too. Yeah, I tend to think you're right. I think deploying ships off um, Odessa, it's, it is intended to divert, distract. I mean, that's it's a standard thing you can do if you have uh, sea power. Uh, you can get the other side nervous about what you, where you're going to throw forces ashore. But of course, you know, actually conducting amphibious landings is, as you say, very difficult, particularly if they're opposed. But, but the other thing is, you know, there have now been a number of reports, 
and I'm beginning to believe them, of combat refusals by naval infantry. And if the Russians are beginning to do begin to come apart at the seams, the way we will know that is that we will begin seeing more combat refusals and we'll see more unit collapses. For example, you mentioned that encirclement up north. That seems to me to be an indication that they're beginning to lose a grip, although you know, you're correct in saying the situation in the south is, is different from the north. Uh, so I, I think you're, that, that analysis is correct. I also think, by the way, I mean, they, will take, they will probably take Mariupol at some point. They haven't done it yet. They've massacred lots and lots of civilians. They've brought in the Chechens who may or may not be good urban fighters. They're definitely good at torturing people. And what that means is that the remaining defenders of Mariupol are going to fight like hell. And I think if they actually try to take that city by sending armored forces in, they're going to pay a very, very heavy price for basically getting a bunch of ruins. Odessa, I think, would be an order of magnitude more difficult. It's a much bigger city. The Ukrainians have had time to dig in, to prepare, uh, to do all the things that the urban warfare experts say that you need to do. On the uh, hypersonic missile, you know, who knows? I agree with you. It's militarily insignificant. You know, ballistic missiles, it does it really make a difference if you're hit by a, um, a cruise missile as opposed to a, uh, a hypersonic missile? I don't think so. But, but I, I do think there's an important point here, which is, you know, what do the Russians have going for them? Fear. I think this is the most important thing. Anne Applebaum has a very powerful piece out in the Atlantic today, in which she says, okay, you know, I'll leave the military and diplomatic stuff to the experts. But she says, the most important thing is not to succumb to fear. And I would say that it is one of the few things that Vladimir Putin is really good at, playing to people's fears, fears of nuclear weapons, fears of chemical and biological weapons, fear of escalation, fear of magical weapons like hypersonics, fear of cyber war. You know, he is not a, a strategist. He is a KGB thug. And the way those people work is by intimidation and manipulation. And he's trying to do to a, that to us. And I believe, and this is where I'd like to turn to you, I think, unfortunately, he's having some success. You know, when I've, I've spoken with not that many people in government, but some, and, you know, they, it drives me crazy how many of them worry about, well, there'll be, there could be escalation. Uh, you know, there could be, we, you know, we don't want this to get out of hand. And, and I think they're, you know, I've, and I've told one of them quite senior, very, very bluntly, I said, you know, I almost don't care if you feel that way. For God's sake, don't say it in public because you're playing into their hands. I mean, I'd rather they not say it in private either. And I, I, I do believe that if we're going to come out of this okay, if Ukraine is going to come out of this okay, you cannot be afraid. Yeah, I agree. Uh, before I before I get into that and and talk a little bit about the deterrence dynamics and escalation dynamics that I think are being mishandled here, and I've been pretty vocal about it, I would say on the uh, on the use of the hypersonic missile, I agree with you. It's it's obviously fear and intimidation. Look, there's a uh, you know a previous case. The, the Russians did something not dissimilar. In Syria, as you'll recall, they fired caliber cruise missiles from the Caspian uh, into Syria. They fired some submarine-launched cruise missiles uh, from the Eastern Med into Syria, and I think you know it's some of the same 
here it's it's the demonstration effect the fear effect some of it is maybe a little bit of experimentation when you know we, we've got a war going so let's see how these things work make sure they fly uh you know an analogy there to the uh, german and italian air forces participated in the spanish civil war and then the third is you know advertising uh, for you know for rosa baron export the uh, Kinzhal, which is a hypersonic cruise missile, isn't an export item yet. However, it is basically an air-launched version of the Iskander cruise missile, which uh, has an export version. Uh, you know, uh, Russians sold it to the Armenians. So I think uh, you're seeing some of the same go on here. I think one of the other things that people have to remember is all militaries, but this does seem to be particularly true of the Russians, underestimate ammunition consumption in war. And they find themselves running out of particularly precision-guided weapons. And, you know, one of the things that is clearly going on with the Russians right now is, first, it's not clear that their precision-guided weapons work so good. I mean, they seem to have had a right. fair uh, misfire rate. Right, which is one reason why you might want to fire the Kinzhal, right, to see and make sure it works. Right. But but they don't. it's not like they have vast stockpiles of these things that they can shower you with. We have a, have historically had problems of running out of PGMs. And I think with the Russians, it's even more so. And so again, that I think reinforces your point about this being a, a psychological weapon more than a particularly useful one. But I'm sorry, I interrupted. Go ahead. No, 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 you're, you're 100% right. I agree with that. On the escalation piece, I've, I've been racking my brains about you know why we seem to have not done a very good job of, I would say, escalation management. I mean, we're all busy talking about what might provoke Putin and what, you know, what might be escalatory and are sending MiGs escalatory. I mean, and you've made this point, I've made this point. If you're, you're killing Russians with javelins, you're killing them with in-laws, you're killing them with stingers. If you kill them with MiGs, they're still dead. And it doesn't matter that one is an aircraft. Now, you know, the head of DIA in congressional testimony tried to make the argument that it was escalatory because presumably with an aircraft, you could fly across the Russian border and and attack Russia, which is true theoretically, except that's not what the Ukrainians are doing. And given the uh, surface-to-air missile threat environment, not likely that they would do. Even the Russians, most of the Russian sorties, and they've increased their sortie rate up to about 300 a day, a lot of them don't cross into Ukrainian airspace. They're they're using standoff weapons like cruise missiles and firing them from inside Russian airspace. So the idea that the MiGs were escalatory, moreover, why would they be escalatory if they went to Germany and we facilitated the transport as opposed to the Poles doing it directly? I mean, the Secretary of State said it was fine for the Poles to do it directly, but all of a sudden, if they go to Ramstein and then come from the U.S., that's somehow escalatory. I it it makes absolutely no sense. There are a whole lot of other arguments one could use uh, about why they might not need uh, the MIGs for a variety of reasons. You know, it'll take too long because they've got NATO crypto in them, and it's gonna ha- that's going to have to be ripped out. They've got advanced avionics upgrades from the MIGs that the Ukrainians fly, so their pilots need more training. I mean, there's all sorts of good faith, practical arguments you could make as opposed to making these escalation arguments, which are ridiculous, and which give the initiative to Putin. And, I, and I've said this multiple times on a couple of other podcasts. Instead of spending all our time worrying about what might provoke Putin, 
who we also in the same breath say is considering using chemical weapons, you know, is considering using bioweapons, uh, is considering creating a, a nuclear incident at one of the many nuclear reactors that are still operational in Ukraine. Instead of worrying about what might provoke him, we ought to be spending more time trying to figure out how we can do things that make him worry about what might provoke us. I mean, that's you know the way you you need to manage escalation in my in my view. And I've I've wondered, and I, I've got a pet theory which I want to try out on you about why it is that the Biden administration has been so bad at this. And it does strike me, and I will stipulate at the outset, this is like an old guy's observation, you know, because you know I'm going to talk about how old I am now. But most of the senior officials, with the exception of Joe Biden in this administration, got into the national security business after the uh, end of the Cold War. And as a result of that, they, I don't think, spent a lot of time worrying about you know, nuclear declaratory policy and all of it, and all of the nuances of that and deterrence messaging, which we fretted over constantly during the Cold War. And when people like you and me were going to graduate school, we studied Schelling, we studied Brody, we studied, God help us, Herman Kahn and Albert Wallstetter. I think there's just an absence of serious thinking about deterrence in this administration and much too much discussion of, oh, that you know, that would be very, very escalatory. Andrei Kozarev, the former Russian foreign minister, has been very articulate about this. And what he has said, I believe, is right. He's basically said at each step of the way, when Putin has done outrageous things going back a decade and a half, his appetite for risk essentially has grown because with each thing that he did, the costs that were imposed were either minuscule or non-existent. And so with each turn of the screw, as it were, he has you know, upped his, his appetite for risk. I think a lot of us were surprised he did what he did in Ukraine uh, because this was a much bigger roll of the dice than he's ever taken before. But if you've poisoned uh, Litvinenko in, in downtown London uh, and had a British House of Commons uh, report that concludes that it was ordered at the highest level of government and nothing much really happens to you. If you invade Georgia and nothing much really happens to you, you know, if you seize Crimea and and then destabilize the Donbass and you get kind of a slap on the hands with, you know, some sanctions, which if you re if you read today the account in the post, even a lot of Obama and Biden administration veterans of 2014-2015 admit now was way too mild. If you've killed British citizens with banned chemical weapons and nothing much happens to you, and you try to assassinate Navalny and nothing much happens to you, your appetite for risk grows. And this is why the deterrence piece is so, so important and so frustrating that I think it's been so badly mishandled. The Biden administration's handled a lot of other things well, but this not so well. I agree with that. But I think it's even more elemental than that. You know, I think the, the leadership generation that you have in place, no matter when they were born, has been shaped by two decades of basically unfortunate war. And, you know, he's just very wary of things getting out of hand, assumes that military initiatives will usually fail in some way. Look, even the administration you and I were par part of was skittish to a degree that was damaging, I believe, in dealing with Iran or dealing with Pakistan. You know, I vividly remember the two of us complaining to one another about that. And I think what and they, Georgia. Absolutely. And I, and I think what they also, what you don't have in the uh, administration, and frankly, in some of the senior leadership, 
military leadership as well, is that visceral desire to beat the other guy and not to let them get away with it. And I also think that there may be a lack of the sense of the enormity of what's now at stake. I mean, this is, you know, you said there's this sort of 1930s or frankly, early 40s vibe to what we're seeing, cities being leveled, political and intellectual elites being disappeared and probably being shot. You know, really war crimes on a- Populations being deported. But deported, I mean, this is- this is as bad as things get. And, you know, instead you have a sort of a, a feeling that, gosh, this is really intense crisis management, isn't it? It's not a crisis management. This is a, a real testing moment for the West. Um, and I just think a lot of these people were not prepared for that. Uh, I think a lot of them view this all as a, you know, a serious, but nonetheless as sort of an intellectual exercise as opposed to war. You know, the, the original title that I wanted to give that article, they, they never used the title you want, is A la guerre comme à la guerre. If you're at war, you treat it like it's a war. And by God, this is a war, and you need to have that kind of that warlike approach. Let me, could, could I use that, actually, to maybe move us a little bit to talk about the administration, uh, about where you think they've done well, where you think they've not done well? how you assess the way in which we're supplying the Ukrainians. And then I think we should probably talk about one of the most difficult things of all. What are the circumstances under which we would be willing to commit American military power? Where I think they've done well uh, has been in rallying uh, the alliance, uh, in planning for the sanctions, including a lot of sanctions I think that Putin didn't anticipate. They were able to pierce what he thought was the sanctions proofing that he had done by amassing this large war chest of foreign exchange, which he now basically can't use, which, and I, that, look, that's no small achievement and it deserves a lot of credit. And in particular, I give credit to Tony Blinken as secretary of state, who's been peripatetic and getting around and working with the allies, um, kind of viewing to the playbook of my old boss, the the late George Schultz, who talked about alliance management and coalition maintenance as sort of gardening, you know, got to be at it constantly. And I think Secretary Blinken has done that. On the deterrence piece of this that we've just been talking about, I think they tried to do deterrence by disclosure before February 24th. And I think that had some benefits. I mean, it had the benefit of forcing the Russians to deny that they were going to invade Ukraine. Those repeated denials now since 24th of February have created a presumption of disbelief, which I think has helped the Ukrainians dominate the information space. Uh, and I think it did also buy them some time to provide some additional weapons, etc. But with the weapons shipments and with the training, there's been you know, a sense I've had all along that it's been a bit of a day late and a dollar short. Everything that has been done should have been done sooner and should have been done faster, uh, in part because, as you say, they're treating this like the troll de guerre, you know, a phony war, as opposed to a real war. And I think, in part, that was because of what you identified in your Atlantic essay. They thought the Ukrainians were going to get walloped uh, and, you know, fold up very quickly. So no point in giving a lot of military equipment to, you know, someone who's going to lose fast. Now I worry that they're uh, now in a kind of posture of, well, let's make sure the Ukrainians lose slowly, you know, as opposed to let's make sure that Russia loses and Ukraine 
survives. I mean, as as Anne uh, Applebaum in the Atlantic piece you just made reference to, Elliot says the the mark of victory will be a, a sovereign democratic Ukraine emerging out of this. I mean, I would add a sovereign democratic and whole Ukraine because if parts of Ukraine are hived off as trophies, you know, rewards for Putin's aggression, that won't be, you know, victory in my view. Just one final observation on the sort of escalation piece that I think has been mishandled. The president keeps saying, we're not going to put U.S. troops, you know, in, into this fight. We're not going to go to war with Russia over Ukraine, but we will, you know, defend all of our NATO allies, you know, Article 5, et cetera. These statements and the statements of the White House spokesperson, Jen Psaki, repeating what the president said, have been replayed all over Russian state TV. And they've been replayed in the context of, well, Georgia, Moldova, they're all ours. You know, they've the Americans have told us we can have those, but it's also whetted the appetite for more. And I think we should pay attention to what's being said by uh, Solovyov and Simonyan and other Russian state propagandists. This is the higher naivete. You should believe what your adversaries are telling you unless you have some reason to doubt them. And they're talking now about we need a, you know, a corridor to Kaliningrad, you know, which is like the the famous Danzig corridor in uh, the 30s, to go back to your point earlier. Poland, Warsaw could be gone in 30 seconds, you know, if we launch a nuclear strike. Uh, The Baltics, they really belong to us too, just like Ukraine. You've got former President Dmitry Medvedev, who uh, was supposedly the reformer that we were counting on uh, when he was briefly president between Putin terms, writing a piece about Poland in the Russian press that is as every bit as unhinged as Putin's piece last summer about Ukraine. They are sending every signal that if they are successful in making Ukraine knuckle under and the quiet slow motion Anschluss that they have actually already executed in Belarus, they're going to be cheek by jowl with NATO and NATO is next on their list. And if people think the escalation dynamics are tricky now, they become much more serious and much more dangerous when we get to that point. I, I, I agree with with all of that. By the way, you know, this, this that does speak to what our ultimate objectives are. The, the most important objective has to do with you know, restoring Ukraine, rebuilding it, hopefully making it whole, although I think that's going to be very difficult, but certainly free, well-armed. But, but I also think we have a negative objective, and that is it is critical that we reduce Russia to the rank of a third-rate state. Uh, and that's why you know these sanctions should stay on as far as I can see forever. Um, and we should do everything possible to weaken the ability of that state to do the kinds of things that it's doing. And that includes, I mean, it's a lot of what the Russians are doing to themselves. With uh, you know, just look at the emigration of tens of thousands of young, technologically sophisticated people who don't want to have anything to do with this uh, this place. But it does mean doing everything you can to cripple their economy. Uh, and to generate internal stress, and, and Russia's vulnerable to that. I mean, that's you know that's the other thing that that I, I do find maddening about a lot of the conversation. I mean, Russia is in many ways a weak state. I mean, you're the one who was uh, stationed there, and you should probably speak to this. But this is not World War II Russia, which you know really suffered incredible hardships to fight the Nazis. This is a state which had a million more deaths than births. Last year, it's headed for demographic collapse. It can't really manufacture anything that the world wants other than some weapons and produce lots of oil. 
I mean, it is a a country that is susceptible to the kind of squeeze that we can put on it if we just have the will to do so. Well, they're doing a very good job of turning their own military into a third-rate military right now. We've already done quite a bit to you know, reinforce. I was just looking at a graphic that NATO put out of the reinforcements of the NATO frontline states. Uh, we're going to need to do more, and that's gonna, a lot of that's going to have to become quasi-permanent, not just sort of rotational forces moving in and out. And in that sense, I think the NATO-Russia Founding Act steps that we took to limit ourselves in NATO are going to have to, at least for, for the moment, go by the board. So that is to say, permanent co- uh, stationing of major combat forces in the new NATO member states. Um, and I think the, the no forward stationing of nuclear weapons, we're going to have to take a look at that too. And uh, getting Poland now, for instance, into NATO nuclear air missions to be part of you know sharing the nuclear burden of the alliance, a, a nuclear alliance, I think all those steps are things we're going to have to take. One last question, because I know we're, uh, we're running up on time. I, you know, my thinking is not fixed, I will confess, about whether circumstances may arise which would require us to use military power directly. Curious, where's your thinking on that one, Eric? Yeah, I know, you know, I've tried to postpone that thought because it is the troubling one. Over the weekend, Liz Cheney was on Meet the Press and they asked her whether the use of chemical weapons should be a game changer. And she said, absolutely. And she said, we, you know, we ought to stop talking about what we're not going to do and leave Putin to worry about what we would do. If he starts to use weapons of mass destruction, I think we'd have to start thinking about a variety of different steps we might take, including creating some kind of humanitarian no-fly zones over Western Ukraine, areas where it's hard for him to operate already, frankly, uh, but just make it impossible. There may be some other steps, but people should be thinking about that now because it could come up on us very quickly. Yeah, I, you know, I think uh, this is a terrible thing to say. I think if certainly they use chemical weapons. I, I would say that's that has to be a red line for us. But the question is whether there's anything beside that that might warrant a direct military intervention. And as I said, you know, I think we have to be thinking about that. I don't know that I have an answer yet. Well, on that jolly note, we've pretty much reached the end of our time. But uh, you and I, unfortunately, I think we'll be returning to this uh, subject again in the future, Elliot. Thank you very much for your great piece in the Atlantic. It was a very important piece. I hope uh, all our listeners will read it. Well, and uh, as always, thank you for your insights. And uh, unfortunately, I think you're right. We're going to be talking about this for a while. And that's it for Shield of the Republic. And we hope you'll tune in in the future to hear continued discussions with me, Eric Edelman, and with Elliot Cohen about national security affairs. 